With all creation I sing praise to the King of Kings. What a, what a fantastic day that's going to be, isn't it? All creation. All of creation. Can you imagine that, what it's going to be like? I was reading in Philippians last night, Philippians 2. Can I just share them with you, share these verses with you in reference to those words of that last song we sang? And it says of Jesus, Instead he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. And he was born of it as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honour and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every knee shall bow. And as I read that passage, I thought, wow, that's probably one of the most sobering passages in scripture on a couple of levels firstly every knee is going to bow can you imagine that every knee not just those like us who worship God but every knee even the the unwilling knee unwilling knees those who have never wanted to bow those who have wanted never wanted to acknowledge God are going to have to bow. Someone has said, I read a commentary once where there are people who are going to have to have their legs broken in order to bow. What an awesome thought. Every knee is going to bow. And then at the other level that it's a, that it's a, um, a sobering thought is that it's, it's been, there's, there's a mandate on us in order to shift people from being unwilling knee benders to willing knee benders. You get that? And and for people to make that shift, it's going to require folks like us to be involved and to be connected, to be engaged, and to be influential in their lives and turn them around so that they became they become willing knee benders. And it's on with that thought that I, I think I these next few sessions I speak. One is today, of course, and then in a few weeks' time. Sorry it wasn't last week. In fact, I'm still recovering from this jolly man flu. Um, how many guys here have had man flu? How many guys here get the support and the sympathy they need when they are going through this debilitating illness? <laughs> it's a shocker. And I read just in a, um, a medical journal the other day that Apparently when a guy's got man flu and he's sitting on the edge of his bed coughing his heart out and he's got this, in, you know, this intense um, pain of, of broken or cracked ribs as well, that, that the, level is, the level of pain is very, very similar to, to, to childbirth. <laughs> and, and, and then it's only because he's... <laughs> Now you're not going to believe anything I say for the rest of the morning, are you? Right, okay, well, I'll just sit down then, eh? But um, it's all because it took, all the man wants to do is to make sure that he's going to be well enough the next day so that he can go out and earn bread for the family, bring the bacon home, and not be a problem to his wife, you know? We don't want to be a burden to our wives, do we? 
Right. So excuse me if my voice, if I don't sound too good this morning. I don't sound too good, do I? How do I, how do I look? <laughs> don't say that. No, no comment there. story is told of a Hindu priest and a Jewish rabbi and a televangelist who had been on an interfaith mission. And they were traveling back to the city one night. It was late at night. They were traveling together in this car and through a country area and the, the car breaks down. And anyway, it's late at night and they notice as they get out of the car, there's a, a farmer's house with lights on. And so they knock on, they go along and knock on the door and the, the farmer and his wife kindly invite them to stay the, the night with them. And it just so happens that farmer says, well, listen, there's only room for two in the house. One of you is going to have to sleep in the barn. And so the, the, the Hindu priest said, well, you know, that, that, that's okay, I'll do that. Um, we're used to living in rough conditions, I'll sleep in the barn. So he goes out and he sleeps in the barn. A couple of minutes later, there's a knock on the door and it's the Hindu priest and he says, listen, he says, I'm sorry, I just can't sleep in the barn. There's a cow in the barn and cows are, cows are sacred in our religion and I can't sleep with a cow. Anyway, the, 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 the Jewish rabbi says, well, listen, he says, I'll do it. He said, um, one of our prophets was, was born in a barn and and there's no reason why I can't go and sleep in the barn. So he went and slept. He went out, and, and a couple of minutes later, there's another knock on the door, and it's a Jewish rabbi. And he says, "Sorry, he says, look, there's a there's a, there's a pig in the barn, and um, look, it's just not kosher for me to sleep with a pig, you know." And anyway, the um, televangelist said, well, he pulls himself out of bed, and he says, "Listen, I'm a man of faith. I can handle it." He says, "I'll go and sleep in the barn." Anyway, he goes out, and a few minutes later, there's a knock on the door, and it's the cow and the pig. With stories like that, religion and the church get a fair bit of stick, don't they? The church seems to be a fair game for a lot of ridicule and derision. Certainly the church and the clergy are not held with the same regard or given the same respect they were 40 or 50 years ago. Whether it's TV programs like The Vicar of Dibley or Father Ted, where religion is laughed at or mocked, or possibly even the allegations of mismanaged funds or, or sex abuse against children where the, the church faces cons- has faced considerable flack in the last 20 years or so, and rightly so. And also there are, we hear of factions of the church that, that have contributed to the contempt by doing things like burning down abortion clinics or burning the Koran or expressing some real hatred and bigotry and to, um, to, to the gay community. And likewise, there is not the same reverence or respect for God either, or even the acknowledgement of his existence. The Bible now has little authority, and the events of the Bible and the fundamentals of our faith are questioned or even considered merely fables or myths, or perhaps not given, given any thought at all. I remember 20 or 30 years ago when apologetics was the way to defend your faith. There were some writers like Josh McDowell who wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict and another guy called Frank Morrison who wrote a book called um, Who Moved the Stone. In fact, Frank Morrison was a, a, a very highly qualified lawyer who was commissioned to do a study on why the resurrection was not true. 
And so he went and he did the study and he wrote a book. But in, in the process of his study, he was convinced that the resurrection was a historical fact. And so he wrote this book called Who Moved the Stone? A wonderful book. If you need to read it, it'd be good. But years ago, the books like that, that dealt with things like apologetics and we could give a, a reasonable um, understanding and a defense for the resurrection. That was the way that we would often um, defend our faith. But now often in our culture, when we talk about the resurrection, people will just shrug their shoulders and say, so what? Or who cares? See, it's generally agreed that our culture is post-Christian. The Christian, in other words, the Christian tradition is no longer the dominating influence in our society. And perhaps that's best expressed in the, um, in the story of the little boy who, after seeing a, pic, a, a, a large crucifix, he, says, he asks his mother, Mum, what is that man doing hanging on a plus sign? In Judges chapter 2, after the death of Joshua, it says these telling words, and, and the, the country or the nation of Israel was at a, a really low point. It says these words. It says, Then another generation grew up that neither knew God or what he had done for Israel. Then another generation grew up that neither knew God or what he had done for Israel. And I wonder if that is true of us today. Another generation grows up that doesn't know God. I want you to listen to these statistics from last year's census. In 2013, the number of people affiliated with a Christian religion was 48% of all people who stated their religious affiliation. This was down from 60% in 2001. In other words, in 12 years, it had dropped 12, um, 12%. In other words, of all the people who said they were religious in 2001, 60% said they were affiliated with the Christian faith, and last year that figure had dropped to 48%. Second statistic. People who ticked the no religious affiliation box grew from 29% in 2001 to 42% in 2013, meaning that out of every 10 people you meet in Upper Hutt tomorrow, four of them will say that they have no religious affiliation. That's, of course, unless you visit the church office. So in in 12 years, the drop is incredibly um, high in terms of the percentage. A culture has certainly changed. If you manage to talk with a cross-section of people about faith, I think you'll come up with something with a response that's something like this. Are you interested in spirituality? Yes. Are you interested in talking about God? Yes, maybe. Are you interested in church? No, not at all. Because there seems to be an awareness for spiritual things and a, and, and a willingness to even consider God. But institutionalised religion... The response is, no, we'll give it a miss. Thank you very much. So not only is our culture rapidly changing with indifference to God and the Bible and the sentiments of anti-church that we face, but from what I see, the church runs the real risk of becoming more removed and insular, and the more it, lose, and the more it loses its touch with its culture, 
the more it realizes that it's, that it's no longer the, the, the steering influence or the rudder of society, it becomes engaged in its own life and its own culture and it just lives in its own life and it removes itself from the world and it's no longer the salt and the light that it's called to be. And the salt remains in the shaker and as we heard about a few weeks ago from Matthew 5 and Luke 11, the, the light can remain either under the bed or under the basket. A couple of weeks ago I shared about how the chandelier needs to be repositioned and rather than the light being reflected in a confined space where we risk the light source being a source of just self-pleasure and self-indulgence the chandelier needs to be lifted meaning that the light can be dispersed into the darkest places of our culture so what is it for the church how does the church respond to this how do we become effective light reflectors knowing that we are in the world but but not of the world, knowing that we are his ambassadors. and Individually, we are his ambassadors. As the church, surely we are then the embassy so that when people want to get a good perspective of what this new kingdom is like, of what the kingdom of God is like, they should look at the embassy and visit it and see what, how these people live. So how does the church respond to that? Knowing that that Jesus said of this powerful, life-giving organism that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. How do we respond? Do we just say, well, we don't care, it's, not our, it's, too, it's too hard, we can't do anything about it? Do we put our heads in the sand, expecting some miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit and for God to turn our culture around and for somehow for people to be coaxed into a God awareness? There are many, many things that we could talk about. I just want to take us down one, one journey this morning because it will link into what I want to talk about in a few weeks. And that is that I want to suggest that the church in New Zealand faces a similar challenge as the missionary faces in a foreign country. A missionary facing in a foreign land, communicating the gospel, faces a similar challenge that we do today. In other words, if we are to effectively communicate and to carry and live out the message of the gospel of the kingdom, we must become missionaries in our own culture. What does that mean? Well, from what I understand, there's probably some essential considerations when, when you're looking at the role of a missionary. Firstly, they have to learn the language. And secondly, have to understand the culture, have to live in it, experience it, breathe in it, and for us, that's being in the world, but not of the world. And thirdly, we need to learn to translate the gospel so that it can be heard and so that it can be understood and so that it can be appropriated in people's lives. So today, we're just briefly trying to understand our faith and how that relates to the culture that presses against us. And in a couple of weeks, we'll look at how we can kind of express and look at some windows that we can, where people are open to conversation about Jesus and how do we engage them? How do we get there? What do we say? How do we translate the gospel of the kingdom so it can be heard, so it can be understood, so it can be appropriated? So even though this morning is entitled Understanding Our Culture, probably it could be titled Understanding Our Neighbour. 
understanding our friend, understanding our work colleague. Question, how many of you honestly struggle with sharing your faith? How many of you grapple with finding the right things to say and knowing that what you say is going to be understood, finding the right words that penetrate into people? How many of you really struggle with that today? Okay, that's interesting. The rest of you are fine, obviously. How many of you older folk, and I say older, I mean 45 and older, find it more difficult now to, for people to be, find it more difficult for people to be receptive to what you were saying than they were 20 years ago? How many of you older people are finding it harder to engage, finding a hook, if you like, that engages people than it was some years ago? That's correct, eh? It's so true. So next, when we speak next time, we're going to look at some of the, some of the ways in which I believe people are really open to the gospel. And, you know, a few weeks ago we talked about the miraculous, and I believe that's one area of, of being open to the supernatural and prayer where I believe people are really open to the gospel of the kingdom. But there are others as well. We'll look at that later on. First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. It's a list here of the different tribes of men who, who gave or contributed some of their soldiers to the army of David in his fight against Saul. And in verse 32, there's reference to a tribe called Yishakar. And it says of these men, 200 men, is that they understood the times. Now, biblical scholars debate if the understanding that these men had was a particular insight they had from God or whether it was because they were adept at astrology. Whatever it was, the, the, their source of knowledge, their source of wisdom was important enough for the Bible to reference that they understood the times. And so this morning, I want us to really understand the times. And as we lay a bit of a platform for that, I'm going to talk about just two aspects, briefly explore two aspects that, of, of things that push against our faith, that make it more difficult for us as we try and engage people to talk with them and communicate, articulate the, the principles of the gospel message. There are two, just two things. Firstly, the removal of sin. Sin was once the legal idea of crime. Did you know that? The Ten Commandments. Now we don't refer to sin. The closest we get to sin is the word sinful. And we find that in a restaurant when we look at the dessert menu. And it's used to describe a dish that's very delicious but extremely unhealthy. Sinful. Instead of sin, we've used the word sickness. Now we might use the word mistake. So we're not sinners any longer, we are mistakers. Have you noticed how we are losing our sense of what is wrong? You notice that? It's okay now to tell white lies, isn't it? And when you purchase something at a shop and you're given the change and it's, it's more than what you deserve, you pocket it and you say, well, I benefited from that transaction, didn't I? And really, you've just stolen something. We're losing our sense of what is wrong. And we're sliding even further to the point that sin is not a mistake or doing wrong any longer. Actually, sin is a virtue to the point that you can... Uh, it's no longer lust. It's sensuality. And it's no, longer, it's no longer losing my temper or being angry. I'm just being 
honest with my emotions. The writers of the latest edition of the Oxford Junior Dictionary have removed the word sin. According to the publishers of the dictionary, there was no need to include words that were no longer relevant to the culture. So the word sin was removed. Have you heard how some people apologise now? They say things like, I'm I'm really sorry if you're offended by what I said or did. You hear that? No admitting that anything was, no admitting that you'd done or said anything wrong, just sorry that the other person wasn't mature enough to handle it. So there's a slippery slope. And God hates sin, not just because it violates the law, but because it's also the barrier or the chasm, the separation between us and him. But because it also disrupts shalom. It violently disturbs the way things are supposed to be. I don't know if many of you have seen the movie called The Grand Canyon. I'd like to have shown a clip this morning, except some of the language would have made it inappropriate, but there's a, a part of that movie where a young lawyer gets caught in a traffic jam and as he's trying to get out of the traffic jam, he goes down this really dark alley street and as he's driving down the street, his car breaks down, it's an expensive car, breaks down and he calls for a tow truck operator and before the tow truck comes, he's surrounded by five young hoods who are going to make a meal out of him. They want his car and one of them's got a gun and they're going to, they're going to take him to pieces. And just as they're about to do the dirty deed, the tow truck comes around the corner, backs up to his car, and the tow truck operator gets out. And then this dialogue begins with the guys who are going to do the deed for this young lawyer. And they were going to start on the tow truck operator as well. And he begins speaking like this. He says, you know what? That young man should be able to stay in his car and not be disturbed. That is not this, what you are doing is not the way that this world is supposed to be. I'm supposed to come in here and do my job and take his car without being, without being, violent, without being violently um, mugged by you guys because this is not the way it is supposed to be. It is supposed to be different from this. And he commences this whole dialogue really about sin and the disruption of shalom. And sin is a terrible thing, not just because it violates the law and it separates us from God, but because it it disrupts, violently disrupts everything the way that it's supposed to be. Why is it important that we understand sin and we're able to communicate its influence and its disruption to what is good and the breaking of our relationship with God? Why Why is that so important? It's because whatever we say about sin... Whatever we don't say about sin will qualify what we say about grace. You understand that? Whatever we say about sin will qualify what we say about grace. We sang Amazing Grace before, didn't we? But without the realisation of the horror of the slave trade, John Newton would never have written the song Amazing Grace. Isn't that right? If, I've not, if I haven't done anything wrong, I do not need to be forgiven. 
If my relationship with God has not been broken, there's no need for restoration. If I just accept this broken, disrupted world and treat it as the norm, I will never dream and work towards what it should be. So the removal of sin brings me to point number two, which is the elevation of me in capital letters. The elevation of me. I, me, mine. (laughs) Mentality that puts me and my pleasure, my fulfillment at the forefront of all my concerns. It's all about me. It's all about my pleasure and my rights and my desires, my pride and everything else. I, of course, is centred in sin as well. We have a culture, don't we, at the moment, around me. We have MySpace, iPads, iPhones, iPods. Everything's about me. Have a personal trainer, you know. My one's going to get the sack. But but we, everything's centred around me. There's a recent phenomenon of doing of selfies. Have you noticed that? Recent phenomenon of selfies. The definition of a selfie, which I, I think is quite cool, is something like this. It's where people take something that is not about them and make it about them through the lens of their camera. Isn't that good? And, and see, it's, we don't take pictures of landscapes. We take, we take pictures of me, but it just so happens that the mountain's in the background or the lake is in the background. We don't pay, take pictures of the dog. It's about me. It just so happens the dog is next door there. How many, come on, how many of you have taken selfies? <laughs> Murray, good to see that generation involved in selfies. I must admit that I succumbed one day and I took, a, I took a picture of myself. I got a text, a really obscure text about 10 months ago. And, and, and the words went like, well, the first word was hi. And I just went, hi. I didn't recognise the number, I just, hi. And it came back up saying, have you got a boyfriend? <laughs> and I said, Nope. And then have you ever wondered that you're getting in a bit deeper than you should get, you know? And then they came back and says, do you want to meet? And I went back and kind of wanted to get the right phrase. I said, sweet as, you know? (laughs) So, and then the the text came back saying, "Um, send me a pic of you. Now, this... This might come as a surprise, but I can look really ugly with my teeth out. <laughs> so I took a photo of myself with my teeth out. I won't, I won't do it now, I'm sorry, because you've, you've got to have a lunch after this, don't you? And, after, and, I, and I texted it back to this, this text number. And you know what? I never heard another thing. <laughs> you've got to win the selfie war, eh? You've got to win it. Anyway, I digress. In Greek mythology, Narcissus is the character who, seeing his own reflection in the water, became so infatuated with himself that he devoted the rest of his life to his own reflection. And depending on what story you've read, what version of the story you've read, the infatuation with his reflection actually led to his death. The historian Christopher Lush says this. He says, we are the culture of Narcissism. This is the new religion, 
a religion where we don't actually want religion proper, but instead we want a personal therapy. It's the massaging of me. Being obsessed with me will always mean at the expense of others. And if God is in the equation, he will only be there for my benefit. It's the spirit that challenges us as we share our faith. And even a needs-oriented gospel can become me-centered. It's the spirit that wars against the church, and the church finds itself being trapped in its very claws. One of the reasons I hate the prosperity gospel is that it's all about me. It's about me. It's appealing to people to come to Christ on the basis of what they naturally want. What's the point of that? The prosperity gospel offers to people what they want just as natural people. And God becomes Father Christmas or an errand boy that we can call and demand what we want at any given time. Our faith can morph from being God-centered and enveloped in the beauty and the richness of community and others to being about me. And sometimes, you know, without us even realizing it. I know this could be a little bit close to home, but listen to some of these phrases to see if they ring true to some of you. You'd never say these things, but you may have heard them, you know. I'm not going to park that far away from the building or walking in here saying, someone has taken my seat. If they start church at a different time, that doesn't suit me and I'm not going to go. Well, how about this one? I didn't get anything out of the worship this morning. Since when, since when has worship been about me getting something out of it? See how subtle it can affect even us. Or I spoke with a woman some five or six years ago who is actually no longer coming here, but she'd been a Christian for 30 years, and she said, one of the reasons I'm leaving, she said, is I'm not being fed on a Sunday morning. I thought to myself, 30 years a Christian and you come to church on a Sunday morning to be fed? You should be encouraged and, and instructed, yeah, sure, but 30 years a Christian, you should be feeding yourself and feeding others as well. It's about me, you know. It doesn't have to be. May we have the insight, the wisdom, and the foresight to understand the times. And it says in Judges, then another generation grew up that neither knew God nor what he had done for Israel. So what will we do for a generation that does not know God, that does not accept the Bible and scoffs at church? What do we do? Jesse has put some ideas together that we can go through in small groups this week, but can I just suggest three things as we finish off this morning? The first thing we can do is dip our toes into the water of our culture and get to know people, really get to know people, start life conversations with people, begin friendships with people, and move beyond just our own groups that we feel comfortable in. Dip your toes into the waters of our culture. Perhaps ask the question, what do I need to do to change so that the light may become better reflected from me rather than just in my own space? What do I need to change in my life so that I might be a better reflective value for him? What does being in the world but not of it really mean for me? And thirdly, can I suggest we pray? 
And what I'd like us to do is not just pray in general terms as we, we tend to do. We can pray for the city. I know that's a good thing. We can pray for our street. But what would be something that would be very healthy and advantageous to us and to others would be to select one person, pray that God just gives us one person, and pray for one person for one minute every day for a month. Pray for chances to engage with them. Conversations will turn to, so that the, the life conversations that turn to God conversations. Pray that God just puts things in their lives that would enable them to, be, to, to consider him and the claims that he has on their life. Pray for one person for one minute a day for a month. And let's see what happens. Could we do that? We'll come back to that in a minute. A couple of weeks ago when Phil, Phil was the second name? Phil Fairbrass was here. He quoted Matthew 9.36 when Jesus walked into the, uh, amongst the people and his, he felt compassion because they were, were like sheep without a shepherd. And I want to suggest that at some time in all of our friends' lives, and all of those that we mix with, our colleagues, even our family members who don't know Jesus, and some, at some time in their life there will be a heart cry that they want to find the shepherd. And I trust that as we pray for them, that the time would come right for us to be able to share the word of truth, the word of life, that would take them a step closer to the cross. You know, most of us here this morning have the assurance and the security of a shepherd. We can quote Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But there's many, many thousands of folk who just don't know the assurance and the security, the safety of a shepherd. I've taken license and I've rewritten Psalm 23 from the perspective of someone who does not have a shepherd. Just listen to it as I read it to you. If only I had a shepherd, that's my greatest need. There is no rest as I wander aimlessly in dry, arid places. My strength has gone, and the many paths just bring more confusion. When I walk through the darkest valley, Fear climbs on my back. Where is my protection and comfort? I starve even when my friends are dining well. My head is crushed and my heart is empty. I long for some goodness and unfailing love in my life. Will they continue to elude me for the rest of my days? Am I included in this forever wherever that will be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are our shepherd, that we shall not want. We acknowledge that you have placed us in this time of history, in this part of our culture and our society that is incredibly demanding, and that really, in spite of how we feel in right here now, the world that we live in is lost. Our friends and our neighbours and our work colleagues do not have a shepherd. 
and faced with the, the real difficulties of life, they are in arid places, thirsty, without any sense of direction. So, Father, give us the tools, give us the heart that would enable us to reach out to those that don't know you. You've called us to live in this world. And, Lord, we're going to do that responsibly. Pick up the call that you have for us to make a difference in the place, in the city, with all the people that you've put us around to engage and to communicate with. Help us to live responsibly, we pray. We thank you for all you've done for us, and we pray that as we just enjoy the light of your presence and know and, and, and can and just be in, enveloped in your grace and in your, in your goodness, that we would always consider lifting up a little bit further so that the light of God could be reflected into the darkest places around us. In Jesus' name. We pray now, as we just think about the one person, the one person that we need to pray one minute for one day for a month for. Lord, lay someone on our hearts, we ask. And we pray for them. We pray that you give us the ability to say the right words and to speak with them and bring the power of God into their lives and see a restoration of their relationship with you. We pray that many, many people would come into your kingdom because of the faithful service of your saints here and because of the power of your Holy Spirit. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.